talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zobel. One of the best ways to understand the ramifications of a pressure injury, both in a clinical and legal sense, is to examine a relevant case study. On today's episode, we are concluding our four-part series within the podcast that examines a fictional pressure injury case from beginning to end. By looking at each part of the process, we hope to have presented a holistic representation of potential real-life outcomes that can be used to expand your understanding of pressure injury cases. This is part four of Avoidable or Unavoidable, the Unstageable Pressure Injury of Mr. Y. And our guest, once again, is Dr. Lee Rutzi, Medical Director at the Saratoga Hospital Center for Wound Healing and Hyperbaric Medicine in Saratoga Springs, New York. Dr. Rutzi, welcome back to the podcast. Hope you're doing well. We're gonna kind of do a little bit of review. To start off, can you remind our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background in medicine and about your experience with hospital-acquired pressure injuries? Sure. My original background was family medicine training back in the 80s and uh, worked private practice as well as emergency department medicine for about 20 years. Got interested in wound care in about 2001, and I've been doing this doing wound care now and hyperbaric medicine full-time since about 2009. In 2015, I was elected to the board of directors of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, and that catalyzed my interest and further work in pressure injury. And of course, it's something that we see frequently on the inpatient side as well as on the outpatient side. And Unfortunately, when we see it on the outpatient side, it's often because it happened on the inpatient side. So our big focus really should be in pressure injury prevention. What do we need to do to make sure these things don't happen? Certainly, there are some pressure injuries that are unavoidable. And what that really means is that we've done everything reasonable to prevent a pressure injury, and in spite of that, it still develops. The reality is that the vast majority of pressure injuries are, in fact, avoidable. And the case that we started out with, David, back a few months ago, and the case that that you've continued with, is the case of a middle-aged man with spina bifida and lower extremity paraparesis who had spent the first 43 years of his life with no pressure injuries whatsoever. He went into the hospital with a significant respiratory illness, ended up intubated and on a ventilator for some period of time, and by the time he left the hospital, had a very large unstageable pressure injury on his left ischium and unstageable by virtue of the fact that there was a thick black overlying eschar. When I debrided that eschar in the clinic, to no surprise, this was a stage four pressure injury. 
And we are, to this day, we're still struggling trying to get this guy closed and healed. So the background, sadly, is that the necessary preventive measures were not, in fact, taken while he was hospitalized. And that's about it. Thanks, Lee. It's certainly great to have you back on the show and certainly all of the expertise you bring to the the field of wound healing and the field of pressure injury prevention is is certainly greatly appreciated. Your overview of the case of Mr. Y was very well done, as as always. And for those listeners that can't remember all of the specifics of this case, please feel free to go back and listen to episode one, where you can get all the ins and outs of the specifics of this case for Mr. Y. Now, Lee, today we're going to talk mostly about the outcome. What happened to Mr. Y? You started to, to get into that just a little bit, but I, I want you to kind of get into that a little more. Can you provide us the overview of what the interventions Mr. Y needed throughout his hospitalization for this pressure injury? Sure. He's been hospitalized a couple of times. The first time was for a fairly significant, sharp surgical debridement done by someone such as yourself, a group of plastic surgeons. That, of course, created a larger wound. And in the process of that, he developed a urinary fistula. And a little bit farther down the road, he had evidence of pelvic osteomyelitis. And the organisms responsible for his pelvic osteomyelitis are resistant to many, many antibiotics. So the reality is that he persists with a urinary fistula that the urology department is not actually certain that they're going to be able to repair. The infectious disease folks, not certain whether there's going to be a suitable treatment for his deep pelvic osteomyelitis and the patient persisting with a very, very large open stage four defect on his backside. So certainly not the sort of progress that we would have liked to have seen following the initial injury. So you made a couple very interesting points, Lee. As a plastic surgeon who does debridements, it's very common, and you alluded to this fact, that when a patient goes to the operating room for their debridement, the wound, by the time it's completely debrided, sometimes is twice, three times the size of the original presumed injury. A lot of times right. the surface of the wound is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. And by the time that we get in there in the operated room and get rid of all of that dead and necrotic tissue, the wound looks quite a bit larger, which is certainly something that seems like you saw in this situation. Right. And we're not really sure. The hospitalizations were not in my community hospital, they were at a referral center. And so I don't know all of the nuances of what happened there. And I'm not sure why the urinary fistula developed, but I think the pelvic and pubic osteomyelitis is not much of a mystery given that this was, again, as I'm sure you commonly see, following the debridement, this was a stage four pressure injury with exposed muscle and bone. And as we know, once the bone is exposed, it's at very high risk for the development of osteomyelitis. So eventually this patient was discharged home, and you as his wound care physician was coordinating the care of what appears to be plastic surgeons, urologists, and infectious disease doctors. 
certainly a burden Correct. to get this patient to all of these specialists in the outpatient setting. How generally do you think all of these different treatments, procedures, and doctor's appointment really affected the patient and his family? I think they're really scared. This is something that they've never had to deal with. The patient, in spite of his spina bifida and, and lower extremity paralysis, was leading what to him was a very reasonable and fulfilling quality of life. His mother, who is his primary caregiver, has never had to deal with anything like this. They live in a relatively rural area. The patient is now spending most of his time lying in a prone position, not up in his wheelchair because of this defect. And every time that he needs to go to the hospital or to come and see me or to any other appointment, he essentially requires ambulance transport to get there. So it's just a very sad situation and I think has created a lot of clinical risk as well as a markedly declining quality of life for him and his family. Yes, it certainly sounds like the quality of life situation is a very large impact for this patient and their family, a complete sort of 360 compared to where he was before this situation started. Right. And given all the different doctor's appointments, specialty care, hospitalizations, ambulance care transfers that you just referred to, do you have any idea what the cost of this patient's care would be after this pressure injury occurred? Uh -huh. You know, David, I've thought a bit about that, and I've wondered how I could go about calculating that because I think that would be a useful piece of this case. Of course, the biggest impact and the one that we worry about the most is the impact on the patient's health and quality of life. On the other hand, this is going to end up somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time all is said and done. And I don't think we can feel confident at this point what the outcome is going to be. And the financial incomes, as you say, are very complicated in, in trying to come up with a calculation. But the financial cost to society in a way that third-party payers pay for many of these different parts of the care, but also many things like ambulance transfers and wound care supplies are not necessarily covered by our third-party payers. And these become out-of-pocket expenses for Mr. Y and his family. That's right. That's right. And they're really struggling with that. Like I said, they live 50 miles from any of the services that they need to access. Given everything we've learned about this particularly complex case, do you have any insight about what was the final outcome for Mr. Y? Well, the case really is in progress. I mentioned he had the debridement, he developed the fistula, he developed the osteomyelitis, and now the team at our referral center is really struggling as to what is it that we're going to be able to do for this guy to get this defect closed going forward. And meanwhile, he's laying on his belly at, at home. So if it's possible to have an outcome in process, he's in process. I wish I felt more confident that he was going to have a really positive outcome. And, and I'm really not sure that he is. Do you think there's any way to predict what this is going to look like six months or six years from now? I should say that I fear that this ultimately may end up with his demise. Thanks, Dr. Ritchie. That's certainly a powerful closing to a very complex case. Let's reflect a little bit about maybe what we could have done one last time to prevent this from ever going down this path. 
Is there a process that hospitals use to identify contributing factors in the development of hospital-acquired pressure injuries? There's a number of, of different protocols or risk stratification uh, uh, scenarios, if you will. Actually, the NPIAP has just finalized the second version of the Standardized Pressure Injury Prevention Protocol, which basically provides a guideline or a framework for hospitals and other institutions to prevent pressure injury. Now, you know, the WOCN Society and many other groups have published other similar guidelines. And these guidelines are meant to be used at the nursing station at the bedside to help us understand, based on a patient's individual risk factors, what are the interventions that we need to put in place to prevent the patient from developing a pressure injury. And it's, in theory, it comes down to a couple of fairly simple premises that the type of pressure redistribution mattress or bed surface the patient is on and are they being effectively turned and repositioned? Those are the big challenges. And granted, when someone is intubated on a ventilator with a head or bed angle at 45 degrees, it's difficult to get those turns. But we've got to try. I mean, preventing a pressure injury means that we don't have to treat one, right? Absolutely, Lee. And especially in this poor guy's situation, I remember so indelibly the first time he came to the clinic to see me and I looked at this and the results of only two weeks in the hospital. That's so interesting. The details of this case are very complex, but, and you've sort of alluded to it already, but in your words, was this avoidable? Yes. And kind of one last wish list for things that we need to be doing yeah. in our field to prevent these pressure injuries. What recommendations do you have that we may not be doing, we could do better, technology that might be out there that could really help us? <laughs> so many answers to that question. First of all, when you think of the long list of major hospital complications or major adverse events, a catheter-acquired urinary infection, line sepsis, falls, surgical site infections, when you look at that list of things, We've done a pretty good job of decreasing the prevalence and, in, and incidence of all of those major complications, except for pressure injury. Since 2014, the prevalence of uh, pressure injury has increased by 6%, while the rest of those complications have decreased in prevalence and incidence. So I think partly it's because historically we have not attached a level of severity to pressure injury that it deserves. So I think it tends not to be of top of mind presence. I think we're struggling with that. I've been on the board of the NPIAP for five years now, and there isn't a meeting that we have that we don't discuss pressure injury prevention and a better way to get the message out there. It's difficult, but we've got to do better. And the most important thing is to identify those risk factors early on and then to mitigate them. This whole session, David, was about avoidable and unavoidable. And I'm not going to quote the exact language, but in order for us to say that a pressure injury was unavoidable, we need to have identified the patient's individual risk factors. We need to implement a plan of care with interventions 
taking into account all of those risk factors. We need to monitor the effectiveness of our interventions and alter our interventions based on the extent of the patient's progress. If we do all of those things, then we've really done all that we can do. But if we miss some of those steps, then no longer are we able to say that the injury was unavoidable. Well, that was very well said. And when you say it like that, Lee, it sounds very simple. But in actuality, it's still an incredibly complex situation with each individual patient. And I really think that we should all be striving for making sure that all of these pressure injuries are avoidable. That being said, do you have any final thoughts to share with the audience? No, I don't think so, David. I appreciate all the time that you've taken to walk us through this, and I appreciate the audience that's out there listening to this and appreciate having an opportunity to once again get it out there with the description, unfortunately, of a very sad case. But I think sometimes a sad case with a questionable outcome may be the most effective way to get a message across. So I appreciate being able to share this. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing all of your expertise and all of the other individuals that were on our show to share their expertise. That's it for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Dr. Lee Rootsey for joining us today to wrap up the case of Mr. Y and conclude our four-part series, Avoidable or Unavoidable, The Unstageable Pressure Injury of Mr. Y. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.